Well, good morning, everyone. Great words from a great song and great reminder, which will go right along with where we're going this morning. If you're new with us, we are uh, teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're doing it sort of in a unique way and that we're doing little mini-series along the way as Paul unpacks this book to the church of Corinth. And, and let me remind everyone this morning as we talk about discipleship in the church, um, discipleship is not a one-trick pony. Every time you come and the Word of God is unpacked, you're being discipled. Do you realize that? And so... So one of the practical applications we do at home is over lunch, when we get home, we get out our notes and we say, what would it look like to apply? What did we learn and what would it look like to apply what we learned to our lives? That's called discipleship, learning how to be a follower of Christ. That's the definition of discipleship. Another example may be that you, you take your notes to a coworker or a friend who's younger in Christ than you and you walk them through the book of 1 Corinthians or whatever book we're going through based on your notes. So you're being discipled, teaching you how to follow Christ. So let's not forget that as we start this morning. Our new series is called Dethroned, Overthrowing the God of Self. The mini-series inside of this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this will go from chapter 8 to chapter 10 as Paul begins to address new concerns uh, with the ch church at Corinth. Uh, I'm reminded that every day the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self are always at war with one another. Do you feel that tension? As long as sin remains, our motives, our words, our actions are shaped by this troublesome mix of the agenda of these two kingdoms. It is as natural as breathing. There are five primary areas, there are more, but five primary ones that self often needs to be overthrown. There's one of self-focus, which means what's in it for me versus freely sacrificing for the good of another without expecting anything in return. There's one of self-righteousness. Being more concerned with the sin and weakness and moral failure of others than you are with your own sin and failure. That's a big one in the church. Self-satisfaction. There's this regular discontent, on the, and we're always on the lookout for the next thing to satisfy or comfort us. Whether it be a person, a job, a vacation, an event some external look, there's something event we're looking for versus being satisfied and comforted in Christ. There's self-reliance. You and I avoid living in this intrusive, intentional relationships where we avoid admitting our need for grace and the help of biblical community. So self-reliance. And then lastly, there's self-rule. Where do you and I get our marching orders from? Is it from our own desires or is it from God's word? So this is a pretty deep list of self-errors for us to think about. They certainly expose us to us. And oftentimes, if we're really honest, it's not pretty. 
To grow and mature in Christ actually means to replace the word self in all these areas with the word Christ. The Lord battles passionately on our behalf through his word, through his people, through his spirit. And I am learning oftentimes the circumstances of my life. So these areas will begin to flip the script, if you would, and be replaced from self to Christ. Christ-focused, Christ-righteousness, Christ-satisfaction, Christ-reliance, and Christ-rule. It is our hardwired bent to ask ourselves to do for us what only the Messiah can do. And the biggest protection against the kingdom of self is to be blown away on a daily basis right here, right now, of the great kindness to us in Christ, what he has done for us and what he's doing in us. Paul really attempts to do that in chapters 8 through 10. His end goal, if you would, for the church at Corinth of dethroning them from their self and allowing God to be the God of their life shows up in one of the last verses of chapter 10, 1031. We've heard it a thousand times. Here's the end goal. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I could add on, not yourself. That everything ends or terminates with his glory and not our own. Jesus put it this way in John 3.30. We must decrease and he must, you finish the sentence, being dethroned from our kingdom of self is not a one-time event. You need to put that in your notes. It is a lifelong, slow, adventurous and yet often painful journey of learning to die in order to live. But it is only the only life that brings us joy and him glory. So as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it is an interesting and challenging passage. As Paul addresses the issue of eating food to idols. Interesting is that you and I get to see from a historical perspective sort of a hot issue in the church of Corinth, the thing they had to face. Like every church in their generation has to face issues. The church at Corinth had to face eating, sacrifice food to idols. But it's unique also, and because it really doesn't apply to us. We just don't deal with foods being offered to idols. You know, this past week I ate at Burger Republic. Anybody eating there yet? pretty good. I never thought once when I ordered that big old hamburger mixed with sausage, I never thought once of asking the waitress, excuse me, ma'am, has this meat been sacrificed to a pagan deity? You know, just never came across my mind. She probably would have thought he's nuts if I'd asked her that, right? It's challenging but also because typically the teaching on this passage is applied to what you and I call gray areas of the Christian life. Issues like drinking alcohol, movies, music, etc., etc. And those are important issues, and we need to think clearly about them. But 
these issues are not the big idea, the main point, the main issue in chapter 8. It can be started from chapter 8, the conversation on those gray areas, but that's not Paul's main point here. He will deal with those specifically in chapter 10. So chapter 8, though, is addressing an issue that is not gray. It is not on the peripheral. It is at the very core of Christianity. The core truth that Paul brings to bear here applies to every church, everywhere, for all time. It is a truth that desperately needs to be embraced and lived out. And here's what Paul was doing. He was just being a pastor. He was pastorally applying this core central truth that he's going to address to their particular situation, that hot issue in Corinth, the food being sacrificed to idols. Paul later describes this truth in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and he puts it this way. If I speak on the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The message actually puts it this way. I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. The core truth here is a lack of love. And you and I know intuitively that there's nothing that will kill a church body faster than a lack of love. And let me be clear here. All truth... And no grace or love becomes law, it becomes legalism, it becomes bondage. Paul is dealing with that here. But on the same uh, flip side of that is all, uh, what is it, all truth, all love and no grace or all love and no truth equals license to do whatever you please. And so we don't want to put those two in conflict with each other. When you think of Jesus... Jesus got most frustrated with those who said they had no what? Sin. He said he was the friend of sinners. And I know when folks come in my office, there's usually this conversation. And as they're hurting, if they're, if they're definitely living in sin, and they say, I am living in sin, help me immediately my disposition changes. Brother, I'm there with you. Let's battle this thing together. But if they're definitely living in sin and they act like they're not, I, don't, I didn't do anything. That, that's mind-boggling sometimes. And so Paul's dealing with that kind of stuff in chapter 8. So as it says on your notes, the context here is more than meets the eye. That's my attempt to be cute, Okay. But it, it is really true here in 1 Corinthians. Let me read the first three verses, if you would. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here's what's happening here. As in most major cities, then and today, it is a regular practice for people to go out and eat meals, to meet for social occasions, 
And in Corinth, it was uh, government officials coming together, religious celebrations. And they did so in the temples, which had these large rooms attached to them specifically for eating. And the meat that had been sacrificed to those particular gods would be served to the people. Now, one of the reasons, one of the several reasons that they, uh, in my research this week, that they actually sacrificed this meat to idols is because the Corinthians believe that demons lived on food. And so you would ingest and get a demon in you if you ate the food. And so they cooked it and sacrificed to the God so the God would wipe out the demons and you wouldn't get demons inside of you. Silly, yes, but that's where they live. That was the, the issue of the day. So here's what we need to understand is most of the people who made up the church at Corinth would have been regular attendees <clears throat> nearly on a daily basis or weekly basis at these temples eating sacrifice uh, food or meat to idols. And we need to understand that the hooks of what they believe were deeply sunk into their own emotional psyche. And so what happened was after Paul left, after 18 months there teaching them the word of God, some of these believers started going back to the temple, back to these what I will call meat, eat, and greets, where the meat had been offered to pagan gods. When Paul was with them, he had told them, don't do this. But now in his absence, they were pushing back on his instructions. They were saying, Paul, we actually have more knowledge about this on this matter than you do. So in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter or verse 1, Paul responds to their pushback by using some of their own words. They had written him a letter. And they had said, we have some problems here. And so Paul quotes their letter, and he says this. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. That's what they had said to him. We know that all possess knowledge, meaning we know, we all know, the truth is the idols aren't real. That's what knowledge means here. But, but we need to go back because in the first six chapters, Paul dealt with divisions. He had already confronted them about their obsession with their own knowledge and their own wisdom by saying, you think you're the smartest person in the room and that's what's causing the divisions among you. Do you remember that? So here's Paul's point is the knowledge that the idols are not real that they are just a worthless piece of wood or metal, is true. Paul is agreeing with them. It's not your knowledge that you're saying this idol is not real. It's your arrogance attached, attaches itself to this kind of knowledge. And when arrogance attaches itself to it, that's what puffs up. Because knowledge can blow up. The actual picture there is like the swelling of a balloon. It's where we get our phrase, getting the big head, right? Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's not the love of learning that Paul's throwing shade on. It's the arrogance because of their perceived knowledge. Here, so here's their argument. Listen, Paul. We know those gods are not real. We know they don't exist. So what does it matter? What does it matter if we, we sacrifice meat to these idols that really aren't real? So these weak, this is what they're saying, these weak, dumb, simple-minded, 
immature folks that make a fuss about this are showing their lack of knowledge, that they think these idols are real. And they're still in bondage to their old way of thinking. So us calling them out on that is really helping them or freeing them from this lack of knowledge. We get them to come eat with us. That's actually a help. It shows them what they're thinking is wrong. Really what they're doing here is they're shaming these younger brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's condescending. It's the rolling of the eyes. It's the what in the heck is wrong with you? You're an idiot. Why would you let that affect you? Shame is a big deal. Here are brothers and sisters. They are saying, I know the idols aren't real, but they're real to me because of all the past and all the past life I had. And the older brothers and sisters, more mature, are saying, they're not empathizing. They're not saying, I struggle with things too. They're saying, what the heck's wrong with you? Here's how Dan Allender describes shame. He says, shame is like a barnacle that can die, but its glue holds on to, to the host. It is the primary weapon of those trying to hurt us. No one escapes the salt of a sneer, a disdainful roll of the eyes. Shame pierces as we feel belittled and exposed as foolish or weak or undesirable. It is the means by which we divide class, race, ethnicity, politics, gender, and status. Those who are above shut the gate behind those who are different. The fence is made up of impenetrable contempt, and it separates us from others and eventually from ourselves. That's what's happening here. The believers who felt superior over their weaker brothers because they knew more had absolutely no awareness of how much they were harming their brothers and sisters in Christ and affecting the health of the church. Because real biblical knowledge would build up the church, and that ain't happening here. Actually, in chapter 10, you're going to see where it's actually leading these younger brothers, these weaker brothers, back into the lifestyle they had before they were converted. Verse 2, Paul says the biting irony here is this. The ones who think they're in the know give clear evidence that they don't know. They're self-deceived. True knowledge has eluded them because of a lack of love. And verse 3 can be phrased out with that the person that loves is the one who is truly recognized by God as having real knowledge. So Paul sort of starts here with addressing the heart issue. And now he begins, if you would, to overthrow the, their selves from the God of them, from the God of their selves. He does so by taking these three very distinct steps to correct them, to admonish them, and to instruct them. And all he's doing here is being a good and faithful pastor. He is not throwing them to the side. He is not shaming them back. He is walking them through very meticulously, especially in these next few chapters. But here this morning, he's walking them through. This is what you need to see here in order to not destroy the church. And the first thing he does is he gives them a doctrinal ramification. Look at verses 4 
through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, little l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here's what Paul does. Paul agrees that what the Corinths have said in the letter to him concerning idols, they don't really exist, they're not real. Like he agrees. He's saying, I'm agreeing with you. That piece of wood, that piece of metal, that thing up on the stage that you bow down to is not objectively real. Now later in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to have to adjust their thinking again concerning these idols. But here he wants to deal first with the heart issue. And then in verse 5, Paul's point is, is, is basically says, although the gods and idols don't actually exist objectively, he's trying to tell them that they do exist subjectively in those who have worshipped them their entire lives, that their brothers and sisters have been traumatized by the worship of these gods and the behavior that usually followed those temple meals, which on the other side of the temple was a, a room for prostitution. So Paul's saying, our, our brothers and sisters have been traumatized by this. And in verse 6, Paul wants to make sure of this, this doctrinal truth, this doctrinal truth of us Christians worshiping one God who Paul calls the Father and one Lord who he calls Jesus Christ is not detached from affecting their life. See, that's the danger, that we can have doctrinal things that we say we believe and yet they be detached from real life. That's a danger for all of us. We would, most of us in this room would agree that Jesus is going to return again, yet in how we live our lives, we're detached from that fact. Paul's saying, I don't want that to happen here. So what is the ramification of believing this doctrinal truth from not letting it be detached from how we actually live? Paul says it is this, verse 6. If we really love the one and only God and the one and only Lord, we won't be puffed up with pride, but we'll be humbly submitted to him because Paul says, he is the reason we even breathe. It is through him we were created and saved. It is for him and his glory that we now exist. He is the actual reason that everything exists. Paul's saying the redemptive activity of God the Father and God the Son to save you and make you His is something that humbles us and makes us submit to Him, not be puffed up with pride. Our salvation came from Him. So Paul says, make sure you understand. First step here is there's a doctrinal ramification in terms of you understanding how to treat your brothers and sisters. And then secondly, he gives us a noble admonition, verses 7 through 10. Let's read again. It says, However, not all possess this knowledge, 
but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Paul gives us a noble admonition here. Verse 7 and 8. He says, for many of the Christians in Corinth, the emotional association was so powerful and debilitating to their new but young spiritual lives. The, the, the couple of things I thought about when I think about what Paul's saying here. It is the person who's gone off to war and been exposed to life-threatening explosions all around him. He gets back to the States and he's walking down the street and a car muffler backfires and he screams and falls on the ground. Ugh! He can't help it. it it's, the, um, it's the person who has come from a life of alcoholism. And he walks in and he smells the smell of alcohol. Something that may not bother me or you. But for him it's traumatic it's, it, it, we use this word, it triggers him to go back there. Paul is trying to unpack that from them. Intellectually, yes, they knew there was but one God, but the trauma of their past would not allow them to go back to the temple. And even though Paul and the ones pushing back, uh, pushing back on Paul agree that the food itself has no bearing on the intimacy with God, Paul is saying in verse 9, the brother or sister can be drawn back into his old way of life. And he, he makes this point here. He begins to really unpack it for them. And that is this. Just because the stronger brothers and sisters are right, they're right in the sense that the idols aren't real. They do not have the right to do as they please. Love demands, Paul saying, you don't do this. You don't lead them back into these situations. Because love means those who are free and strong and mature in Christ, they actually give up their rights for the sake of the others, for the sake of those around them. Maybe this will help us understand. Let's say you got a great basketball player. He hardly never misses a shot. Matter of fact, you ask him how he did, and he says, I went eight for eight tonight. But the reality is, from three-point line, but the reality is he went eight for eight in the opponent's basket. Now, he's a great shooter. No doubt about that. Like, no one can argue that he can shoot the lights out. But his eight for eight in the opponent's basket is not helping his team. It's hurting his team. That's Paul's point here. You're right. Idols are dumb. They're a piece of wood or metal. But you being right 
and driving that down to your weaker brothers and sisters who are still coming out of that very traumatic lifestyle for all their life, it is hurting the team. It is hurting the church. <clears throat> Being right is worthless if it is taken out your brothers and sisters, Paul would say. And then thirdly, Paul gives a gospel application. A gospel application. Let's read these last few verses and then try to apply this verse to us. Verse 11. And so, Paul says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. The brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if any food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's where vegetarians came from, verse 13, right there. Here's what Paul's been doing step by step. He's been getting them to see them. And now he lays out what many have called the velvet hammer. Or as we would say, he finally played his ace card. He's led them through this process, and now it's time to bring it home. He is reminding the Corinth believers why they're even Christians in the first place, of what God did to make all of them strong and weak, mature and immature, to make all of them a gathering of blood-bought, rescued, grace-given people. So when your so-called knowledge, he says, encourages your brother or sister to go back into the dark life they wallowed in before their conversion, you are working in a direct opposition to what Christ and his love for that man or woman is trying to accomplish. The weak... Here's the problem. The weak that, that is in this text cannot refute. They cannot debate. They can't fight off the strong's manipulation. They can't fight off their arguments. What is only eating of food to the strong for the weak is the actual worshiping and idols and all that goes along with it. The smells the sights, the acts, the drunkenness, the sex, the temptations, it's too much for them to bear. When I first came to Christ, I had lived most of the first year of my college life at a bar downtown named affectionately the Elbow Room. Uh, I know why it was named that way now. There was only elbow room in the place. And uh, it was just, it was just a, a building with loud music, a lot of alcohol, flashing lights. But you know, there were years. I, I couldn't go back down there. Matter of fact, few months after I came to Christ, some of my friends invited me to go, and I thought, I, I, I can go, right, as long as I don't participate in what's happening. I walk in the door, 
And as soon as I paid my way and walked into the elbow room, it felt like I was going to have a heart attack. My stomach knotted up. I broke out in a profuse sweat. I started shaking. I had this reaction that was uncontrollable. And I remember walking out, walked in, <laughs> walked around, left the building, and I wept as I walked back up the hill to my dorm. I thought, I can't go in there. I'm not ready for that. I could go in that building seven days a week now, every night, on a gospel rescue mission. Wouldn't bother me a bit, but I couldn't do it then. And that's where these people are. Paul says they are not just a person with a weak conscience in verse 11. They are a brother or sister for whom Christ has died. Again, the strong so-called freedoms have moved them in a direction of themselves. While love always moves in the direction of what is best for the community of believers. That is something for you and I to apply to our community groups. Paul always brings them back to the cross and away from their own thinking, knowledge, and wisdom. That's what he does in verse 11. Then in verse 12, he says, When you sin against a brother, you sin against Christ and you tear down his church. Do you remember the very first words that Paul ever heard Christ speak to him? We know the story from the book of Acts. Paul has official papers. He's on the road to Damascus, and these official papers say that he can go into the homes of known Christians, and he can ravage their homes, he can arrest them, he can bring them back to Jerusalem, and maybe even put them to death. And it was on that road that Christ struck him down, and the very first words that Paul heard from the living Christ were Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting me? So intimately has Christ identified himself with believers that when they are being persecuted, he says, you are also persecuting me. I think Paul learned a powerful lesson that day. Something that got driven into his soul that day. And now he says to these puffed up, self-focused Christians, you sin against Christ when you sin against each other. And then he ends with, therefore, <laughs> therefore, when it comes to these kind of areas, look, I'll do whatever it takes if I never eat meat again. That would be fine for me than to make my young brother or sister stumble and go back to the dark life that they were living before they were converted. I want to draw them out of that, not put them back in that through my shaming of them. Paul Tripp, on your notes, puts it this way. He says, the church is not simply a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people, 
place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love him more, and learn to love others. Great theology should always produce this spiritual fruit, or it's just wasted knowledge that puffs up. It's a great summary of the message. Let me give you three what I call great dethroning questions. We need some questions to help us dethrone ourselves from self. First one, is there an awareness in myself that my knowledge produces a sense of superiority over others? It's where we actually can take the Bible and turn it into a weapon because we know more of it than the person we're talking to. We turn it into a weapon, whether it be with our spouse or our friend or our co-worker, and it drives them away, not to the cross. Is there in my life a godly, humble attentiveness to the spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being of my brothers and sisters in this church? And then lastly, are you empathetic toward the broken lives and stories of your new brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you feel what they have felt? Do you hear their stories? Do you, do you look at them and think back to where you were one day, where you started, how confusing it all was of why you were doing what you were doing, how your story connected to that, why you struggled with what you struggled with, the reality of the depth of your own struggle? Is there empathy there for that? Paul's going to address a lot of things as we look at dethroning ourselves. You know, we're not very good gods. Can we just agree on that? So this is a great little few chapters to say, how can I not be the God of my own life? <laughs> Paul's going to deal with all that. But this morning, he's dealing with the very core essence of Christianity. And that is our love for one another, regardless of where we are in maturity. So take a minute, ask yourself those questions, and ask the question, so what? What would it look like for you to apply this message to you this morning?